All right, everyone. We're going <clears> to <throat> we're going to get started here. The first weekly multidisciplinary critical care conference of the new academic year. Thank you all for coming. And I'm sure that we're going to have similar attendance for every single subsequent conference. In anticipation, now that we have food, it may actually be a possibility. Um, so uh, as you can obviously see, these are now Friday for those of you that have been here before. Uh, instead of Thursdays, it's at 1 o'clock as opposed to noon, obviously, since you're here. Um, and... Um, uh, we're kind of reformatting the conference somewhat um, just to have it more geared towards a, a critical care curriculum um, that we've established. And we're going to try to bring in um, outside speakers that, you know, from all over the globe, really, uh, for sort of multidisciplinary critical care grand rounds, um, you know, once a month. So uh, to start us off, welcome. Many of you know him who've been here. Uh, Dr. Carl Shanholtz. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not yet, Carl. <laughs> so, uh, this is Dr. Shanholtz. He's our medical ICU director here at Maryland. He's been uh, an investigator in the ARDSNET for years. He's um, actually, by training, uh, both an oncologist and an intensivist. Um, and, uh, and his expertise in uh, area of main uh, clinical research interest is ARDS, so really a, a true expert in the field, and um, a welcome addition to start us off. Thanks, Carl. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming for lunch, and oh, by the way, my list is on lunch. But I know why we're all here, so these are my disclosures, and you never get anyone less than my time so, what is ARDS? So, we're talking about a common disorder of injury to the lungs, mainly inflammatory injury leading to non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema and shunt. Uh, it's a common cause of respiratory failure in critical care units. Uh, it's been estimated about 10% of ICU, adult ICU admissions and 25% of the patients. occurs in medical and surgical patients. There are multiple exciting conditions. So the important thing to keep in mind is that this is a syndrome. Um, and so we're focusing on the pneumonia and the underlying cause. But um, there may be multiple exciting conditions that lead to the syndrome. Uh, pneumonia, aspiration, sepsis, trauma. And it was originally called the adult respiratory distress syndrome. Um, is it just mean that it's the volume picked up? Uh, it's too bad, but it can occur in children. And part of 1994, there was a lack of a standard definition, particularly in And it was difficult to track the incidence and outcomes. So there was an American European consensus conference in 1994, which for years marked the last time the Americans and Europeans were working together in any case. Um, and at that time, they defined two categories. This is the Probably a little less painful. So, um, so there were two categories: uh, acute lung injury, which was all patients with a PF ratio less than 300, of which ARDS was a subgroup of this total group of those with a PF ratio less than 200. And why PF ratio? What does PF ratio mean? You know, if your PaO2 is 150 and your FiO2 is 50% or 0.5, that's a PF ratio of 300. But why, why do we use PF ratio? Well, it's a surrogate measure of shunt. If you really want to measure shunt fraction, you need a Swan-Gans catheter to get mixed venous oxygen and do some math. And we hate doing math in the ICU. Uh, so that's a little bit cumbersome to make the diagnosis. AA gradient, similarly, you need to do a little math. 
This is a very easy um, surrogate marker for hypoxemia that's um, um, in excess of what you would predict for the amount of oxygen you're, you, you're supplying. Uh, no PEEP was defined. Uh, the chest radio, it called for a chest radiograph with bilateral infiltrates on a frontal uh, chest X-ray. Um, and it, for parsimony, uh, it excluded the possibility that the patient had congestive heart failure. So if there was no evidence, if there was a swan in place... This, <laughs> um, so if there was a swan in place, um, can you hear me now? Um, the wedge pressure had to be less than or equal to 18 or at least no evidence of left atrial hypertension and risk factors were not identified. Well, over the years, we realized that people were confused by the overlapping subgroups um, there was some confusion about what we meant by acute onset. So in the Berlin conference uh, a few years ago, they defined uh, acute onset as one week of symptoms or the inciting event. There were three non-overlapping subgroups uh, identified, mild uh, PF ratios of 200 to 300, moderate PF ratios of 100 to 200, and severe uh, PF ratio is less than uh, 100, and uh, a PEEP or CPAP criteria was delineated of five centimeters of water or more to prevent uh, patients with simple atelectasis um, from being included in the cohorts. We realized that there were more imaging modalities than just plain frontal chest radiograph um, to uh, to detect bilateral opacities. And um, we also realized that a lot of the patients who have a mild amount of congestive heart failure uh, are not protected against pneumonia and severe capillary leak and may not explain why somebody has a uh, FiO2 of 80% and a PEEP of 16. So it was deemed that if uh, hydrostatic pulmonary edema is not the primary cause of respiratory failure, the wedge pressure criteria were removed. However, one had to have an inciting event. Otherwise, you're obligated to, um, um, to rule out congestive heart failure as the major cause of pulmonary edema. So what's the incidence? And this is data from Gordon Rubenfeld's uh, New England Journal paper. Uh, where he studied uh, patients in King County at all the hospitals and was able to extrapolate to the U.S. population. And uh, using these data, there are over 190,000 cases a year at that time um, that, were, uh, uh, that were estimated with an annual number of deaths of 70, uh, close to 75,000 putting it in the same league as breast cancer. Now, why don't we have 10K races for ARDS? Because it's a syndrome, and it's one of the Rodney Dangerfield syndromes like sepsis. You don't read about people dying of pneumonia. You read about people dying of complications of pneumonia. Well, what kind of complications? Well, they had respiratory failure, and they were on mechanical ventilation. They had ARDS, but it just goes unrecognized. And also, as the population is getting older, the incidence of ARDS is likely to get um, to increase as well. So what are the risk factors? Well, there's direct injury, like pneumonia, aspiration, trauma, inhalation injury. And there's indirect injury, like sepsis, post-shock, drug reactions, transfusion reactions, pancreatitis. Now, under normal situations, we have an intact alveolus uh, that's filled with uh, air, a very thin layer of surfactant uh, overlying a very thin type 1 pneumocyte, um, a very thin barrier of interstitial fluid, and an intact capillary. So it's easy for oxygen to diffuse across those layers and get uh, into the circulation and latch onto hemoglobin. Uh, with inflammation, there's uh, swelling of the epithelium, breakdown of the alveolar epi of the epithelium, um, 
swelling of the endothelium, breakdown of the endothelial barrier in the capillary, uh, capillary leak, a lot more interstitial fluid, protein leak, denuding of the epithelial membrane, hyaline membrane formation, inflammatory mediators being liberated, activation of neutrophils and macrophages, fibrin deposition, and essentially turning the alveolus into soup. And no matter how much you turn up the oxygen upstream, it's just not going to get through uh, this flooded, uh, fibrosed, uh, clotted off alveolus and into the circulation. And this leads to the hallmarks of ARDS, of pulmonary edema, mainly non-cardiogenic or non-hydrostatic pulmonary edema, loss of compliance, and hypoxemia refractory to supplemental oxygen, in other words, shunt. And in addition, there's a loss of capillary surface area and an increase in dead space. And those in San Francisco prove that uh, the amount of dead space is directly proportional to mortality. So years ago, we thought, well, the lungs are stiff because they're uh, edematous and it's like inflating a sponge. And with the advent of CT, body CT, we realized that instead of just diffuse infiltrates, we have a homogeneous distribution of infiltrates, whereas in the bases, the lungs may be very adlectatic, consolidated, densely socked in, where they're sitting above, uh, behind the heart and above the diaphragm. And in the apices and anteriorly, uh, the lungs may be normal, and if actually you corrected the compliance for the volume of variable lung, you'd find that the specific compliance is actually normal. So we're not talking about stiff lungs. We're talking about small lungs. We're talking about baby lungs. In addition, there's a third population of alveoli, those that are adlectatic but recruitable. And what we mean by recruitable is that with a little bit of added pressure along the inflation limb of the pressure volume curve, we can convert some of these adlectatic alveoli to aerated alveoli. But at the high end of the inflation limb of the pressure volume curve, we're also overextending the normal areas of the lung. Now, what happens when we take baby lungs and we overinflate them? Well, this was Webb and Tierney's seminal work from the mid-70s uh, in rats. These were normal rats. Um... um some people use lawyers instead of rats. They're more plentiful, and you can't, there's some things you can't get a rat to do for money. Um, but Webb and Tierney used rats, and they inflated them with peak airway pressures of uh, 14 and peeps of uh, zero. And uh, another group was inflated with uh, peak airway pressures of 45, which was not a record at that time. Back when I was in training, um, we did actually have electricity, but um, uh, it was not unusual to see patients with severe ARDS with peak airway pressures of 60 or 70 and five chest tubes in, um, and a severe amount of barotrauma. But these rats were inflated with peak airway pressures of 45 um, and no PEEP. And then the rats were sacrificed um, and the lungs in the ones with low uh, inflation pressures were normal, but the ones that were inflated to high tidal volumes were swollen, edematous, even hemorrhagic, and looked more like liver than lung. In fact, when they were sectioned, the pathology, the histology, was considered hepatized lung um, because they were so hemorrhagic. Interestingly, there was a third group, that was inflated with peak inflation pressures of 45, but 10 a peep was provided. So the lungs were allowed not to deflate all the way. And they were a little more edematous, but they were a lot closer to normal than they were to the hepatized lung. And so was this a protective effect of peep preventing atelectasis and atelectrauma, the inflation, deflation, and shear forces on adlectatic alveoli that are being recruited and de-recruiting, or is this a protective effect of the lower amount of inflation? If you have a peak area pressure of 45, but a peep of 10, your driving pressure is only 35, and so the patient uh, and so the 
rats are going to be given a lower tidal volume, or is it a protective effect of both? So that's the question. Is this barotrauma, volutrauma, or trauma? Well, a few years later, Dreyfus repeated the experiment, but he added two additional groups. He had rats inflated to a high peak inflation pressure, but the thorax and abdomen were strapped, cut to the chase. They did not get lung injury. Uh, and another group of rats that were inflated with a negative pressure device like a cuirass, uh, where they could be inflated to the same high volume as with positive pressure, but at a low airway pressure, and at the high volumes, they still got lung injury. And he also found a protective effect of PEEP, but was this a protective effect of PEEP or low tidal volume or, or both? So this led to the concept of the open lung approach, that there may be a sweet spot on the inflation limb of the pressure volume curve where you need a minimum amount of inflation, a minimum amount of PEEP, to prevent atelectasis and atelect trauma, but you want to limit your inflation pressures or your inflation volumes to protect against ventilator-induced lung injury and over-distension and rupture of the alveoli. And this led to the work we did in the ARDSnet with low tidal volume ventilation where patients were randomized to a low tidal volume of 6 mLs per kilo of predicted uh, weight versus 12 mLs per kilo tidal volume, uh, 12 mLs per kilo uh, of predicted body weight tidal volume. And we dose tidal volumes by predicted body weight, not actual body weight. If you actually look at the chest X-ray or the chest CT of an obese patient, uh, their thoracic cavity isn't any larger. Um, so inside every obese patient are tiny lungs trying to inflate. Uh, and we found a reduction in mortality from 39.8% to 31%, a 22% difference. And this was after four decades of wandering the desert looking for the promised land. Um, the first positive uh, multi-center randomized control trial uh, in ARDS. Well, some would say, who cares about twiddling the dials on the ventilator because nobody dies of respiratory failure, they die of multi-organ system failure. Well, it depends on the patient population. Uh, the studies that showed that nobody dies of respiratory failure, many of them were surgical patients with uh, infradiaphragmatic sources of sepsis, but if you look at the medical population where your most common uh, cause of ARDS is pneumonia, a lot of those patients do die of respiratory failure. But the other thing is if you injure the lungs, uh, like if you were to injure any organ, you get inflammatory mediators uh, liberated in biotrauma. And, in fact, um, your reduction in inflammation related cytokines is greater on the low tidal volume group than the high tidal volume group over the first three days. Well, what about the numbers? Well, we report worse numbers in the low tidal volume group, uh, lower pHs, higher CO2s, and worse oxygenation. Uh, and the PF ratios were worse for the first three days, uh, but then they crossed over. And uh, beyond three days, the low tidal volume group had better oxygenation. So oxygenation in the short run was a very bad surrogate marker for outcome. Um, the low tidal volume group for the first three days clearly had a worse uh, PF ratio uh, and worse gas exchange. But in the end, better survival. I take better survival. So is there a safe plateau pressure? That was the other controversy. Uh, why do we have a plateau pressure limit of 30? Because 30 or 32 correlates with the pressure needed to inflate the lungs to total lung capacity. And the assumption is that if you get uh, a plateau pressure over 30, uh, something must be over-distended. Um, and that led some to believe that everything under 30 or 32 was going to be safe. 
well, uh, this study by Dave Hager of the um, low tidal volume st study looked at quartiles of plateau pressure and found that at any quartile of plateau pressure, the patients that were on the low tidal volume arm had a lower mortality. So there may not be a safe limit of plateau pressure. What about preventing electrauma? Uh, so there were three uh, large multicenter randomized controlled trials done in, and published in the mid-2000, the alveoli study from the ARDSnet, the LOVES trial that was Canadian, and the EXPRESS trial that was French. Um, all the studies were uh, negative for their primary endpoint of mortality, and two of the trials were stopped early for futility. In this meta-analysis, uh, there was a suggestion that the patients with who were worse off, the ones with PF ratios less than 200, in other words, moderate to severe ARDS, may have actually benefited from a high PEEP strategy. Uh, what? Okay. I didn't know this would be an obstacle course. Um, I thought we would have to go back and have lunch all over again. Um, so it was suggested that the patients with PF ratios less than 200, in other words, moderate and severe ARDS, may have actually benefited from the high recruitment um, and the higher PEEP strategy. But those with, who were not as severe with PF ratios greater than 200 um, in other words, the mild ARDS may have been harmed by the uh, higher PEEP strategy. And in fact, um, using a higher PEEP strategy in the moderate to severe ARDS was a recommendation from the 2017 consensus conference. But why would this be the case? And this may be the case from Gattinoni's work that showed that the volume of recruitable atelectotic lung is proportional to the severity of the ARDS, that the patients with um, moderate to severe ARDS have more atelectotic lung and are, stand to benefit from a higher recruitment strategy of higher PEEP, whereas those with a mild ARDS have less recruitable lung and all that the higher PEEP is going to do is set them up for over distension and ventilator induced lung injury. And what about uh, driving pressure? And by driving pressure, we don't mean road rage. Uh, we mean um, the difference between plateau pressure and PEEP or the delta P and that is the pressure needed to inflate the lungs to any given tidal volume uh, along the inflation limit of the pressure volume curve. It represents the mechanical power that is being expended on these poor uh, inflamed alveoli um, to uh, recruit and inflate them um, during inspiration. And in this causal mediation analysis of the ARDSnet low tidal volume study, the three high PEEP studies in Marcello Amato's um, open lung uh, study, it was shown that delta P, or the driving pressure, is directly proportional to mortality uh, regardless of the plateau pressure and regardless of the amount of PEEP. So audience participation, should we titrate PEEP to minimal driving pressure based on those data? How many say yes, show of hands? All right, you would use an open lung approach. How many say no? And how many say, who cares, we're putting them on ECMO anyway? <laughs> this is University of Maryland, of course. And uh, since the 2017 um, 
consensus recommendations came out. There was publication of the ART trial, a multicenter randomized control trial um, from multiple ICUs in multiple countries, over 1,000 patients with moderate to severe ARDS enrolled, and the patients were randomized to either recruitment maneuvers and PEEP titrated to the best compliance on the inflation limb of the pressure volume curve versus a low PEEP strategy. And these investigators found that uh, in the primary endpoint, death was actually higher in the recruitment maneuver PEEP titration arm, and uh, outcomes were actually worse in some of the secondary uh, endpoints as well, including death uh, at six months, 28-day ventilator-free days, barotrauma, and uh, pneumothorax. And the editorial that accompanied this by Sahida and Brower uh, was titled, Is the Door Closing on the Open Lung Approach? And maybe it's better to keep the lungs uh, closed and rest them and not expend any power on trying to get them inflated uh, at all. So driving pressure is a post hoc analysis. It's thought-provoking. It's hypothesis-generating. But I would say that as of yet, nobody knows exactly how to do it, um, and I think more research is um, called for. So what about lung protective uh, ventilation, and does lung protective ventilation improve outcomes uh, and prevent ARDS in those patients who don't already have ARDS? And there were some studies that suggested it did. Uh, this meta-analysis of all these trials suggested that uh, in patients who do not yet have ARDS, it prevents progression to ARDS and lung injury um, and may actually improve mortality as well. Um, and it was a strategy I've adopted. However, and uh, in the perioperative patient population who were going, they're going abdominal surgery, uh, not thoracic surgery, who had normal lungs to begin with. Uh, this uh, New England Journal paper suggested that it prevented perioperative complications like need for reintubation and post-op pneumonia. But to burst my bubble, there was the publication of the PREVENT study last year, multicenter trial in the Netherlands of over 900 patients, randomized to a low tidal volume um, and titrated down to 4 mLs per kilo or an intermediate tidal volume starting at 10 mLs per kilo of predicted body weight and uh, titrated down for P-plat over 25, uh, for the most part about 9 per kilo uh, of predicted body weight. And no difference was shown in any of the outcomes, including uh, development of ARDS. Um, so it may be that an intermediate or lowish tidal volume is good enough in patients who, know, who don't already have ARDS could also be that considering that ARDSNET required over 800 patients in the low tidal volume group and patients who had ARDS and had a high event rate, it took over 800 patients to show uh, a difference in outcomes, that 900 patients is just not enough to show um, a difference in outcomes when the event rate is so low and the study may have been underpowered. Um, but it may also be, as I said, that a lowish or intermediate tidal volume in patients who don't have ARDS uh, is good enough. So what about fluid management? So about 20 years ago, the Yardsnet uh, also did a fluid uh, titration study. It was a factorial design study. Patients were randomized to either a CVP or a PA catheter, and uh, wedge pressure or CVP were used. Uh, to monitor intercavitary pressures and drive a fluid or diuresis algorithm. I'll cut to the chase. There is no difference uh, in the primary endpoints, depending on whether one uses PA catheter or a CVP. But the patients were also randomized to a fluid conservative or a fluid liberal strategy. And in the fluid conservative strategy, we targeted a CVP of three or less and provided their blood pressure was stable, they were not in shock, and their renal function was adequate. 
we flog them around the clock with diuretics. So if you had a CVP of four, we flogged you with Lasix. And we, we McCurdiated these patients, um, trying to drive them out. Only 25% of the time did we actually get to a CVP of um, less than four before they were extubated. But we had a significant decrease in uh, CVP over the first um, week uh, from 12 and change to 8 and change, a 3 to 4 uh, millimeter of mercury difference, whereas the fluid liberal group remained pretty much stable, maybe dropped by a half to a millimeter of mercury. Um, so the next quiz question, what was the fluid balance after seven days in, uh, in the patients on the fluid conservative arm? A, less than minus five liters. B, zero to minus five liters. Or C, roughly even. And the answer is actually, even though we flogged these people with Lasix around the clock, drove the CVP down by three to four millimeters of mercury, after seven days, uh, the fluid balance was plus 150 mLs. Meanwhile, in the liberal group, where we thought we were keeping the CVP stable and their fluid balance stable, and actually management reflected this standard that um, conservative thinking um, intensivists were giving their patients prior uh, to, uh, to the study, uh, the patients were actually gaining seven liters in a week, a liter a day. And why were we not seeing this in the CVP? Well, their hands swell, their feet swell, they get anasarcic, and guess what? Their lungs are swelling too. So did we improve mortality? Well, from 28.4% to 25.5%, a relative 10% improvement, but it wasn't statistically significant because we were underpowered to show that it's statistically significant. But there were some important secondary endpoints, like the composite endpoint of being alive and off the ventilator by day 28. There were two and a half greater ventilator-free days in the conservative group, um, and there were 2.2 greater uh, ICU-free days by day 28 in the conservative group. And we think that as long as it's not killing you or the trend is towards survival, uh, I'd rather spend my time alive and off a ventilator and out of the ICU than on a ventilator and in the ICU. So we would consider this an important secondary endpoints. What about that we need the fluid to protect organ function? And we didn't find that, um, including in protection against dialysis. If anything, there was more dialysis in the fluid liberal group than the fluid conservative group because swollen kidneys don't work better um, than, um, than uh, unswollen kidneys, and you just have to dialyze off the fluid off of the waterlogged lungs. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit to prone positioning because this also has evidence in favor of it. Why do we uh, um, prone the patients? Because a lot of that atelectatic lung sits behind the heart and above the diaphragm, uh, if you think about the lungs as pyramids, most of the volume of a pyramid is at the base. And if you flip the patient prone, you allow the chest to inflate symmetrically and uh, take the weight of the heart and the lungs off the dorsum of the lungs and allow them to inflate. You're not just shifting around infiltrates because the lungs will go back to uh, where they were when you supine them. So you're taking the weight of the heart and the abdominal contents off the dorsal base of the lungs where most of your volume of arable lung is and making it atelectatic. You get a more homogeneous distribution of pleural pressure. You reduce basilar atelectasis. And you improve VQ matching by increasing the homogeneity of the gas tissue ratio away from having a lot of dead space and a lot of shunt to having a more even distribution of gas and, and tissue between the dependent and non-dependent areas of the lung. Now, where do they get the idea from this? I think it's the rotisserie chicken craze, and I consider this the Boston market approach to ventilation. So does this help patients? 
so these meta-analysis of studies suggested it might. Uh, in the earlier trials, uh, we didn't ventilate patients as long. The Gattinoni paper in New England Journal, the patients were only prone uh, for, I think, eight hours out of the day and for only ten, the first ten days. Um, and in the earlier trials, uh, patients who had less severe lung injury, the mild ARDS, were included. Uh, the later trials, we prone patients for longer periods of time out of the day, for many more days, and um, included sicker patients who stood more to benefit because they had more atelectatic lung. And the meta-analysis suggests that there might have been a benefit um, to prone positioning. And in a large multicenter randomized control trial by the French, by Garin et al., uh, over 400 patients were enrolled. They looked at the moderate to severe early ARDS in the first two days. PF ratio is less than 150, needing more than 60% oxygen. They prone for more than 16 consecutive hours a day, so uh, they didn't keep flipping them every six hours like we used to. Uh, they prone them up to day 28 if necessary. And the mortality was cut in half. This study was stopped early for efficacy. Uh, 28 during mortality of 16% versus 32.8% cut in half. 98, 90-day mortality uh, cut in half from 41% to 23.4%. And importantly, there was no difference in complications. Because all those earlier studies showed more complications of dislodged endotracheal tubes and pulled-out catheters uh, in the prone group, and there was no difference in the complications, which suggests that these were very trained um, nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists in the study ICUs and knew what they were doing, prone for a living. They didn't, this wasn't a hobby, uh, and had the protocol down. And I think that makes a difference because dislodging an endotracheal tube in some of these patients could be a fatal event or a near fatal event. Um, so if you know what you're doing and you choose the right patient population, proning seems to have a major impact on outcome. So does improvement in oxygenation predict outcome of prone positioning in ARDS? How many would say yes? About a third of the patients, by the way, um, about two-thirds of the patients, by the way, are going to improve their oxygenation when they're prone. About a third of the patients for whatever reason, are not going to improve their oxygenation when they're prone. Does that make a difference? So how many say yes? How many say no? Most of you say no. And how many say who cares? We're putting them on ECMO anyway, regardless of whether or not we prone them. And this was Rick Albert's analysis of the Proceva study. He looked at uh, of the prone patients' quintiles in PF response and even in the worst quintile, where, if anything, the PF ratio got worse uh, and oxygenation dropped, um, there was over 90% uh, survival and uh, no difference in any of these quintiles. So, again, the improvement in oxygenation is a very bad surrogate marker for outcome because you're not really trying to just improve gas exchange, you're trying to recruit the lungs um, and uh, without damaging them and preventing, preventing ventilator-induced lung injury. So what about neuromuscular blockade? Normally we would think that keeping patients awake and spontaneously breathing is good. It may prevent complications of over-sedation and delirium and neuromuscular weakness. Um, but sometimes you pay a price, and you pay a price by desynchrony. If the ventilator is giving 20, um, um, 20 centimeters of water positive pressure and your diaphragm is pulling minus 20 centimeters of water positive pressure, your transmural pressure across the alveolus is going to be 40, and you can get over distension. Uh, if you double trigger the ventilator and start stacking breaths, two 6 ml per kilo breaths is going to be a 12 ml per kilo breath. So these are sources of volume trauma and barotrauma. Uh, conversely, uh, you can recruit the expiratory muscles 
And uh, even though you have a positive end expiratory pressure, you may uh, de-recruit the lungs and have a small end expiratory volume uh, and still have atelectasis, uh, which can do all the bad things that barotrauma, volutrauma, and atelectrauma do. Um, and maybe in the more severe patients, we should rest them. And this was suggested uh, in the Papazian Acuracis trial of about 10 years ago uh, that enrolled moderate to severe early ARDS, a similar patient population as the Proceva study, and showed a trend towards improved 90-day mortality and a barely significant um, 20 improvement in 28-day mortality. And... Uh, a moderately significant improvement in the 90-day hazard of mortality when corrected uh, and when adjusted for differences in PF ratio, PPLAT, and SAP's severity of illness scores between the two arms. So this has had some controversies. Some people believe it. Others are still reluctant to use neuromuscular blockade uh, because of all the uh, downside. So the NHLBI uh, pedal network prevention of early um, prevention early treatment of acute lung injury uh, network funded by the NHLBI uh, revisited um, um, systemic early use of neuromuscular blockade and published the Rose trial uh, just a few weeks ago um, and showed no difference in any of the outcomes whether they were on um, cisatricurium or control. Why? Uh, the edit accompanying editorial suggested that one of the differences is that the Rose trial enrolled them a little bit earlier and maybe some of um, the people who would have died before enrollment in acuresis were enrolled into the Rose trial and that may, may have made up for differences. But the big one was that in this acuresis trial, um, both arms had deep sedation. And it may have been that the cisatricurium um, benefited the patients, but the control group was harmed by the deep sedation, whereas uh, in the Rose trial, the control group got light sedation. And it may have been this difference in sedation that made up for the differences in outcome. So when all else fails, we use salvage therapy. Um, and um, during the H1N1 epidemic of 2009-2010, uh, we broke into our closet and took out um, some of our, um, dusted off some of our techniques that uh, didn't have positive evidence for them uh, out of desperation. And some groups found uh, better than expected survival um, using these uh, rescue therapies uh, during the H1N1 pandemic. So first, inhaled vasodilators. So what's the rationale? Well, if you use a systemic vasodilator, you're going to decrease pulmonary uh, vascular resistance and improve pulmonary artery pressures. But the problem is you're vasodilating both the uh, ventilated alveoli and the unventilated alveoli and worsening your shunt fraction. But if you confine your vasodilator to the ventilated alveoli, you'll selectively vasodilate the ventilated alveoli, improve VQ matching, uh, and steal shunted blood away from the unventilated alveoli and improve your shunt fraction. And in fact, you will improve the gas exchange and will improve the oxygenation while the inhaled nitric oxide is running, but it won't change outcome of anything. It favored control. Remember, nitric oxide is an oxidant. Um, it's an active component of cigarette smoke and uh, automobile exhaust, so you may be paying a price for it. Uh, at this institution, it's $125 an hour. And since it doesn't improve outcome, I'm not willing to spend $125 an hour uh, to treat a pulse oximeter. What about ECMO? Well, uh, 40 years ago at this point, um, ECMO was a crude medieval device. 
um, that filled up most of the room, and then you put the patient in it um, um, when you took some of the ECMO equipment out. Uh, the intent was not to rest the lungs because we didn't know much about ventilator-induced lung injury at that time. Uh, it was mainly meant for gas exchange augmentation in patients who were extremely sick. Mortality was over 90%, and there was no difference because likely these patients were unsalvageable to begin with, and the ECMO technology was very crude at that time. We learned a little bit more over the ensuing decade or so about ventilator-induced lung injury and the importance of lung rest, and the technology improved, and we were getting better than historic outcomes uh, reported from uh, extracorporeal gas exchange used mainly for CO2 removal uh, that allowed uh, some degree of lung rest. Uh, and in fact, mortality had improved over the years, but uh, in this prospective RCT by Alan Morris's group in Utah, uh, mortality was improved in both arms and there was no difference between the uh, two groups in outcome. Um, we learned even more about ventilator-induced lung injury and the um, technology improved uh, even more over the next 20 years until publication of the CSER trial from the UK and now mortality was decreased from 50% to 37% with the use of ECMO, um, which was a trend, but not quite significant. But when one looked at the composite endpoint of mortality and disability at six months, um, it was, there was a significant difference between the arms. However, there was a fair amount of crossover in the trial, and that was by the intent to treat analysis. Well, one of the problems with the intent to treat analysis is that even though you intended to put um, all the patients randomized to ECMO on ECMO, um, 16, 25% uh, of them never got ECMO, mostly because they improved by the time they got to the ECMO center before they were cannulated. Um, so crossover was a problem. There were also some other confounders. Um, for instance, if you were randomized to ECMO, you got transported to the one center in the trial that uh, cannulated you and put you on ECMO. Uh, if you were randomized to the conventional management group, you stayed out in the community. Um, that's somewhat of a confounder. And also, if you were randomized to the ECMO arm, you were a lot more likely to get treatment by a low tidal volume, low pressure ventilation strategy, which we know improves outcome. So the CSER trial was promising, but it had some major confounders um, and needed uh, to be confirmed. Uh, last year, uh, came publication of the EOLIA trial uh, for which we took part uh, early on before the FDA um, yanked the trial in the United States. Um, um, this was a multinational RCT, uh, ECMO for severe ARDS versus protocolized management. The patients, to prevent crossover from the ECMO arm into the control arm and to make sure patients were cannulated. They were cannulated uh, in the field before transport. Many stayed at the referring hospital, but they were treated with protocolized management and fidelity of the protocol was actually pretty good. Um, however, patients on the control arm, if their oxygenation didn't, if their gas exchange didn't improve and they were thought to be survival and at the discretion of the uh, physicians um, were allowed to be crossed over to ECMO. The study was unfortunately stopped early for futility, uh, even though they were showing a trend towards improved survival, uh, mortality of 35% in the ECMO group versus 46% in the control group but it was unlikely that they were going to make the 20% absolute difference in survival that they had powered the study on. Um, so it was stopped early for futility. Uh, if one looks at the composite endpoint of death or crossover, in other words, treatment failure at 60 days, um, there was uh, a significant difference. 
So some people dream of success, and others like me live to crush those dreams. Um, so I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll admit I'm somewhat of an ECMO skeptic and um, authored a letter to the editor um, after this trial. And the, the uh, issues that I brought up were, one, there may have been bias in the crossover. So there may have been survivor bias. So it was about four days or so before the control arm crossed over. So you're picking up people who die, who survived the first few days before you decided to cross them over to the ECMO group and weeded out the people who weren't going to um, sur survive. Um, there is some possible selection bias. They were slightly younger and uh, lower incidence of um, renal replacement therapy at the time of randomization, although these weren't significant differences. We already know that lack of improvement in gas exchange does not predict mortality, and that was one of the indications for, for crossover. And they tried to statistically analyze and make up for the crossover um, with rank-preserving structural uh, failure time modeling. And the problem with that is that the longer the patients uh, have crossed over onto the treatment arm and are treated on the uh, treatment, um, the harder it is to statistically adjust for that. You may get multiple solutions. And importantly, it assumes the hazard is the same for those who crossed over as those assigned. Well, that's a pretty big assumption, especially since the control group that received ECMO had a 57, who were crossed over, had a 57% mortality, and those who were originally assigned had a 35% mortality. Um, if you do the look at the per protocol or as treated analysis, Mortality in those who received ECMO was 40%, and those who did not receive ECMO was 42%, although I'll admit this was a very draconian um, and severe way of analyzing the, the data because you're, you're um, looking at the folks who, quote-unquote, failed the conventional uh, treatment. Uh, the authors um, answered that, um, uh, the, the letter with, well, you may think they weren't as sick uh, in those who crossed over, but in fact, their pHs were about 7.1, and their lactates were rising, and a quarter of those patients cardiac arrested. And I have to say, um, you got me there. If you cardiac arrest, I would say that's treatment failure. Um, however, I think um, it still holds true that lack of improvement in gas exchange doesn't predict mortality. And while they only found one solution uh, with the rank-preserving structural uh, failure time modeling, um, I don't know that the other assumption that uh, the hazard is the same for those who cross over as those assigned really holds. Also, they showed that uh, there was a difference in complications between the groups <clears throat> somewhat more hemorrhage requiring transfusion in the ECMO group, but a fair amount of hemorrhage in the control group as well, and more strokes in the control group as opposed to the ECMO group. Well, if you actually look at those who crossed over versus didn't, the hemorrhage is all or mostly all in the um, patients who crossed over, and so were the strokes disproportionately in the patients who uh, crossed over. So the bottom line is, if you believe in ECMO, you're still going to believe in ECMO and take the everybody-needs-ECMO approach to severe ARDS. If you don't believe in ECMO, um, you're going to hold out and wait for a confirmatory trial before you, uh, uh, that's unconfounded before you um, allow those proponents of ECMO to declare victory. I will do have to make an admission, another disclosure, that yes, as a matter of fact, even though I'm a skeptic, I do refer some patients for ECMO because, as General MacArthur said, there are no atheists in foxholes. When the uh, artillery shells are flying over your head and the patient's cardiac arrest uh, or about to cardiac arrest, yeah, even I would call for, um, uh, for ECMO. 
But I think there are some things that you may need to do first, like evidence-based treatment and maybe proning, um, and then it may be a judgment call from, from there, and um, everybody has a potentially different threshold. What about APRV? I'm going to go a little quickly because we're running out of time. Um, the potential advantages are breathing comfort and lighter sedation and benefits of spontaneous breathing and improving atelectasis and increasing venous return. Uh, if you, uh, however, the total number of um, randomized control trials in APRV number less than 350. Um, there are over about 1,400 patients uh, in the ARDSNET ventilator trials um, alone. Uh, the first three trials didn't show any difference between the APRV arms and the control arms. Uh, Zhao, uh, the Chinese study uh, that came out a couple of years ago or so, was the only positive study amongst them. And there were some major confounders, especially in the comorbidities in the control group, the control group had a disproportionately higher amount of COPD, congestive heart failure, liver failure, and cancer. So unless APRV prevents you from having cancer, um, these confounders are going to bias the results. Uh, by contradistinction, the Ganesan trial, which was an Indian pediatric trial, was stopped early for futility uh, because of excess mortality uh, in the... Um, in the um, intervention group, in the APRV group. So I don't think that there's any compelling data, that, um, uh, at least by prospective multicenter randomized control trials in favor of APRV. Um, my favorite toy was the oscillator, and uh, why would we want to use it? Because you can't get a lower tidal volume than this. I mean, this is super low ventilation. The tidal volume is lower than the dead space. Departs from bulk flow principles of gas exchange. It uses a high frequency in hertz to compensate for a small tidal volume and might be the ultimate protective strategy. However, two RCTs were negative. The uh, UK trial by Young et al. Uh, showed no difference. Uh, the oscillate trial, the Canadian study, which used the same oscillator that I used in a protocol that was very similar to what I used, uh, showed actually excess mortality in the oscillator group. So after this, I was ready to put my sensor medics 3100B uh, up on eBay, although the pediatricians still, still use it. And part of low tidal volume in the and, and titrating to a, uh, a low tidal volume in a plateau pressure under 30s, uh, you know, assumes that the chest wall compliance is normal. And that may not be the case in some patients, particularly surgical patients um, and obese patients and very edematous patients. And a more accurate measurement of transpulmonary pressure requires placement of an esophageal balloon and doing esophageal manometry. Uh, there was a phase two trial by Dan Talmore um, that was promising that this might uh, improve outcomes in patients with ARDS. We took part in a phase three trial um, that was published uh, earlier this year, but was negative uh, with no difference in the uh, primary endpoints. And there's always steroids. Steroids never die. You know, 30 years ago, we gave steroids early on at high doses for a couple of days and found worsening mortality, and then we rediscovered them at a lower dose and a longer period of time. Uh, to prevent the fibroproliferative phase of ARDS. And the bottom line is um, in the uh, ARDSNET, we uh, enrolled 180 patients. Uh, we found um, shorter time to breathing without assistance, but the curves came together as we tapered the steroids and there was no difference in uh, outcome. So we wound up burying just as many patients, although some of them without a ventilator. Um, so where are we going to go from here? Esophageal manometry may still be the, um, you know, a treatment that you want to pull out for select patients, um, like morbidly obese patients rather than all. 
mesenchymal stem cells may be promising, vitamin D, antiplatelet therapy, however, an aspirin study by the LIPS-A group uh, by USIT um, showed that it was not effective in preventing the development of ARDS. Uh, more needs to be done to look at recovery from critical illness and early mobility and getting people on their feet and off the ventilator because the longer you stay on the ventilator, the worse your outcome. And then we're interested in our division on targeted temperature management because fever is very common in ARDS. It increases the ventilator length of stay, at least by our data. And we have some uh, non-randomized case control data that suggests that patients may have improved outcomes uh, if we prevent fever in them. So we have an active protocol for that right now and put in a grant submission. So if we have time, if anybody wants to stick around, uh, I'll take some questions. Thank you. Yes. Okay, I have two answers for you. Yeah, so um, both questions. When do you stop proning? Um, um, you know, although improvements in gas exchange don't predict mortality, um, that's the only marker I have that the patient's getting, quote-unquote, getting better. And when I have them down to ventilator settings when they're supine, um, that are better than those that would indicate they need proning, um, I stop proning. So if they're below 60% FiO2 and below, say, 10 a peep, um, and these are patients when they're supine. Now, they may improve their gas exchange while prone, um, but if they can hold that improved gas exchange when they're supine, um, then, um, um, then usually I stop proning. The other uh, indication I have for um, um, to stop proning is when the nurses are going to rebel and, and shoot me. Um, um, so that's another compelling um, um, reason that I stop proning. Um, adaptive design. So uh, this has come up in recent discussions with some colleagues about whether or not some of these negative trials should have you know, enrolled too many patients who weren't going, who weren't sick enough to benefit, and there may have benefited from a um, from um, a run-in period to sort out those who were quickly going to turn around, no matter what you did, from those who were really sick and needed the intervention, and would have enriched the population. Um, that's possible. Um, but um, you run up against the practicalities of it just makes it harder to enroll. Um, and I have patients that everyone said, ah, now they're getting better. Uh, you don't need to uh, enroll them. We're going to start weaning them by tomorrow. Uh, and a week later, they're being traked and, um, you know, um, or, or you've got to prone them and uh, they're going the wrong way. Um, uh, similarly, there are patients uh, that I haven't enrolled because everybody said they're going to die. We're going to have a family conference. We're going to pull the plug. Two days later, they're being weaned from the ventilator, and um, um, you know, or, or they're still on the ventilator, and they might have benefited from being in the trial. Um, but um, but uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but. It, but at least it's an answer.
Actually, also um, meet meet your, meet you and raise you. Um, is it even about ventilation, or is it about right heart failure? Sure, quite welcome. 